Welcome to Here to Make Friends, a HuffPost podcast about The Bachelor franchise, where we lovingly snark on The Bachelor and Bachelor-adjacent shows. Whether you love The Bachelor or love to hate it, we're here to break down every single delicious moment with you. I'm Emma Gray. And I'm Claire Fallon. So, surprising news in Bachelor Nation. Uh... Bachelor in Paradise, which we thought was dead, is back. The internal investigation was completed, and the show is resuming taping and will apparently air this summer. Yeah, that all happened very fast. Uh, And meanwhile, we've been hearing, um, as Bachelor Nation uh, fans, we've been hearing from the main people involved. We've also been hearing statements from other cast members. A lot of people seem to want to chime in on this. So in this bonus episode, we just want to reiterate that this is us trying to break down the information that's out there. We are absolutely not taking a stance on this case as we were not there. We haven't seen the footage and we have had no part of Warner Brothers internal investigation. Yeah, um, even though the investigation was completed, um, we don't really think it's necessarily helpful to talk about what the final conclusion might be about what happened. Instead, we want to talk about and explore the perceptions and the narratives that have come up around this incident um, rather than make any, you know, real judgments about what happened. We won't ever probably know all the particulars. And it's just a, a really difficult situation to to know for sure what happened. And unfortunately, it really taps into a lot of super problematic ideas that our society has about female sexuality and about black male sexuality, uh, interracial relationships, and rape culture. So to help us break all of this down, you're going to hear from a few people who aren't us. Um, One of them is Lisa Bloom. She's an amazing civil rights attorney who represents alleged victims of sexual assault and harassment all the time, including in cases involving a number of really high-profile men, including Bill Cosby, Donald Trump, and Bill O'Reilly. We're also going to hear from Karina Ray. She's an associate professor of African and Afro-American studies at Brandeis University, and she's written a book called Crossing the Color Line, Race, Sex, and the Contested Politics of Colonialism in Ghana. She's done a lot of work on interracial relationships and the politics and um, and social constructs surrounding that. But first, let's catch up on the news. Bachelor Nation was shocked this week to hear that the cancellation of Paradise, which we had all assumed was certain, would actually not come to pass. Yeah. So filming is reportedly set to take place this week. Uh, it looks as though... Many, though not all, of the original season forecast members will be returning when filming resumes. Um, according to People, ABC is kind of scrambling to cast some new contestants because of the big hiccup in their scheduling. <laughs> um, so everyone participating is being asked to clear their schedules between now and the end of July. And normally it would have wrapped up filming around the end of June. June, yeah. So this is, you know, a big change. Uh, understandably, I assume some people's schedules just wouldn't allow for it. And the last time we checked in about this entire fiasco, neither DeMario nor Corinne had even put out a statement. And now, a week later, the entire internal investigation is wrapped up. So we're going to kind of run through all of the the big things that went down with BIP over the last week, um, specifically looking at the allegation of misconduct. 
Right. So Warner Brothers put out a statement about the conclusion of their investigation um, as follows. As we previously stated, we recently became aware of allegations regarding an incident on the set of Bachelor in Paradise in Mexico. We take all such allegations seriously. The safety, security, and well-being of the cast and crew is our number one concern, and we suspended filming so that the allegations could be investigated immediately and thoroughly. Our internal investigation, conducted with the assistance of an outside law firm, has now been completed. Out of respect for the privacy interests of those involved, we do not intend to release the videotape of the incident. We can say, however, that the tape does not support any charge of misconduct by a cast member, nor does this tape show, contrary to many press reports, that the safety of any cast member was ever in jeopardy. Production on this season of Bachelor in Paradise will be resuming, and we plan to implement certain changes to the show's policies and procedures to enhance and further ensure the safety and security of all participants. So there's a lot in that statement, um, and a lot of the details in there we're going to ask Lisa Bloom about, um, because I think we're we're really interested in kind of getting to the the legal perspective on this and, and what a statement like this is supposed to do. I mean, obviously, from Warner Brothers' perspective, as far as they're concerned, like this is over and done. And I think that it's in their best interest to move on and want to to um, get to filming a new show and hopefully wipe away people's you know memories about this fiasco. Yeah, it seems like they don't want to write this season off and risk sort of leaving that as the last taste we have of paradise for a year. They kind of want to reset. Barrel through. Yeah. And and we'll see how that works for them. And yeah. we certainly hope that, uh, you know, in the past we've commented on um, situations on paradise when it seemed like the the safety and comfort of the cast was being sort of glossed over. And we really hope that this really means they're going to take the opportunity to Put some new procedures in place to to make things a little safer for everyone yeah. there. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, I, I'm not sure we'll ever exactly learn what those things are if they exist, but but I hope that they everyone is being taken care of. Before this statement was put out, there was so much media attention being being placed um, on this entire incident, and obviously, Corinne and Demario's names were both out there. So after we last spoke about this, um, both Demario and Corinne put out statements. Last week, DeMario put out a statement saying, It's unfortunate that my character and family name has been assassinated this past week with false claims and malicious allegations. I will be taking swift and appropriate legal action until my name is cleared. And, per the advice of legal counsel, will be seeking all available remedies entitled to me under the law. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty basic statement. Um, and he he also said in interviews um, – or in statements to the press that he uh, had only engaged in consensual activity with Corinne. And he was really, um, it seems like, put like in, put in a very tough position and mostly kept pretty close counsel over, over the week while this was happening. There also was some news that came out um, that stated that he had been let go from his job at a, an executive recruiting firm because of this. Um, but last uh, or this past week, the firm put out a statement saying that he had left their employment in March, and so his departure was not related to the scandal in any way. So that's where that kind of stands. Um, so Corinne, uh, for her part, has put out two statements now. One um, 
while this investigation was going on on Warner Brothers' side and then another one through her lawyer following the conclusion of the Warner Brothers investigation. Her her statement last week, she explicitly said that I am a victim and have spent the last week trying to make sense of what happened on June 4. Although I have little memory of that night, something bad obviously took place which I understand is why production on the show has been suspended and a producer on the show has filed a complaint against production. As a woman, this is my worst nightmare and it has now become my reality. Um, And that's the beginning of the statement. I don't think we need to read through the entire thing, but she's very clear that she is a victim in this situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it's also really important to note that she – the legal counsel she's retained is Marty Singer. And he is, from everything we know, like a real Hollywood bigwig lawyer. If you are a celebrity who has some sort of scandal, you go to him to shut it down, get it settled, yeah, have everyone move on. He's represented in the past people like Bill Cosby, Charlie Sheen, John Travolta, um, it's important to note he's no longer representing Bill Cosby, and he left that um, some time ago. But he, mm-hmm. when when the um, kind of charges initially began, kind of streaming out in in 2014, uh, Marty Singer was Bill Cosby's lawyer. Yeah. So it it is a, a notable choice on Corinne's part. And Corinne and her camp were sort of talking to the media a fair amount. And one thing that was expressed um, a few times was that. She um, didn't blame DeMario that she thought he was also impaired. She seemed to be um, suggesting that she was upset with production for the way that that day of filming went down. Um, But once the statement came out that the investigation had been concluded and found no wrongdoing, uh, her attorney put out a new statement saying it needs to be made crystal clear that production of Bachelor in Paradise was shut down because of multiple complaints received from VIP producers and crew members on the set. It was not shut down due to any complaint filed by Corinne against anyone. It comes as no surprise that Warner Brothers, as a result of its own internal investigation, would state that no wrongdoing had occurred. Our own investigation will continue based on multiple new witnesses coming forward revealing what they saw and heard. So this is something that we'll just keep an eye on. Obviously, um, they're going to continue to look into this and I assume put pressure on on Warner Brothers. Um, but it's definitely notable that they reiterated that Corinne has not made a complaint against yeah. anyone. And we are definitely lay people, but there is certainly a tone of um, – this wasn't something that she created. She was put in this situation by other people. Um, and it seems like the statement is really meant to establish that. Um, and now she's, you know, this. it's difficult to shut down a, a big media firestorm just by saying we completed our internal investigation. So Demario and Corinne might still have um, a lot of fallout to deal with. Uh, meanwhile, several of the other Paradise contestants who were there during taping have – put out statements about their perception of what happened that day. Both Raven Gates and Jasmine Good um, gave interviews or posted on Facebook. And as well as both of them were pretty active on Twitter in the last few days, um, pretty explicitly saying DeMario is innocent in this, that he has been, you know, false allegations have been thrown his way. Um from their perspective, uh, 
Corinne was not in danger. Yeah. And was not blackout. We want to be clear that it's likely impossible for anyone, even if they were a witness, to have a full knowledge of how someone processes alcohol or whether they were um, in a blackout state. It is possible to be in a blackout state and also appear lucid. So we just want to establish that. Yeah. From their perspective, um, the media reports and the way that the allegations were being portrayed was was not accurate from their perspective. I mean, there were um, reports that Corinne was fully unconscious during parts of the encounter, that she was injured to an extent of needing medical attention. And Raven and Jasmine um, have come forward basically to say, we were Corinne's friends. We cared about her. If we had seen that she was in any sort that any sort of situation like is being described here, we would have stopped it. We would have stepped forward. That's not what we saw. I think um, Jasmine said, you know, yeah, Corinne had some bruises after that night. So did I. We both fell and we both got medical attention together. So they they're bringing sort of this different um, right. They've angle also to it. Um, spoken out in support of production. Yeah. Saying that they, you know, and this was not just them. Some other former contestants who were not there have also spoken out um, basically just to voice their support for their own personal positive experiences (laughs) with the franchise. Yeah. So a lot of you have probably read um, Evan, former contestant on the show, Evan Bass. He actually got married this weekend to Carly Waddell, who we met on the show. They had this I think one of the best VIP romances. Um, And before the wedding, he wrote an essay arguing that the show should not be canceled, basically because he had a really good experience on the show. He fell in love there. He thought that production took good care of them and they came out of it stronger. Um, We weren't weren't totally sold on this angle. It seemed – um, you know, we've been big fans of Evan and Carly and of Evan specifically on the show. But um, if something bad really did happen on the show, then other people having liked it there is, we think, not the most compelling part of the situation. Right. And I also think it's important for us all to keep in mind that th- bad things can happen and that doesn't necessarily require malicious intent on the part of producers. Uh, I don't think they're – this entire situation is is really awful for everyone involved. That's the one thing we definitely know. And and there can be cultural problems in an environment without anyone specifically, you know, going out there with the intent of hurting anyone or going out there even with the intent to not protect someone. Um, so I, I, th- I appreciate why these contestants might want to let everyone know, like, hey, a lot of us have had fantastic experiences and grown from this. And and I understand that impulse, but um, it's just not necessarily relevant to one individual potentially negative incident. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, bad things can happen amongst good people. You know, if you think that someone has to be bad in order to let a bad thing happen or do a bad thing, then it's much harder to pick up on a lot of things that that could be improved. Um, again, we we don't really ultimately know what happened. Um, neither did Evan. He wasn't there. Um, but it does look like he's 
ultimately getting his wish because the show is taping again and it looks like Paradise is going to carry on. And they got married and that's all, you know, we're really, really happy for them and hope that, you know, they can now like start their married lives in wedded Nashville bliss. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So we wanted to delve a little bit more, as we mentioned up top, into some of the really thorny and, and difficult um, areas that um, that are relevant to this conversation because we're not legal experts and we're not experts on the historical racial dynamics that have really played into to this situation. So first we're going to shed some light on the legal part of this new story. And to do that, we talked with civil rights attorney Lisa Bloom, and we're going to share that conversation with you now. Just to start off, why would a producer file a third-party complaint against her employer um, if she had questions about you know, a, an incident between two cast members? Uh, well, I mean, she would have to answer that question, but I'm going to assume it's because she couldn't get relief internally through an informal process. You know, I've been doing these kinds of cases for 31 years, and by the time people come to my office, uh, they've usually tried with their employer to get things worked out, and their employer has not been receptive. And so they, the next move is to go to a lawyer. So there is a, a legal case if you are, have, have a concern with something that happened with between two people that you're not a part of, um, but if it was in within your place of work. You can, yes. So if you are a witness to sexual harassment or sexual assault, if that creates a hostile work environment for you, you may have a claim uh, for sexual harassment. California law uh, is very broad, and it's designed to really protect everybody from sexual misconduct in the workplace. And that includes people who are not directly a victim, but people who may have just witnessed it. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I would also be great if you could just explain a bit what it means that California has a, an affirmative consent law. Well, uh That's a little bit different than the employment law. So my understanding is is that California uh, colleges and universities uh, require affirmative consent, which means that each participant in a sexual act has to say yes to each act. Uh, So that's the affirmative consent law. I don't think that's generally applicable, for example, on the set of a reality show, although it's always a good idea. And that's, you know, one of the things that I called for in the wake of this Bachelor in Paradise scandal is why not? You have, you know, a lot of attractive young people who are drinking a lot of alcohol and being encouraged to hook up and there's cameras all around. You know, why not just make it very easy for everyone and require an affirmative yes to each act? It doesn't have to be a big deal. It takes half a second to say yes or to just ask, you know, hey, is this what you want? Yes. Okay. Then you keep going. Yeah. Otherwise, no, no means no. Maybe means no. Drunk means no. Inability to speak clearly means no. Everything else means no. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. You know, obviously, alcohol um, 
plays plays a huge role in in this situation. And one thing that has been consistent across pretty much all of the reports um, is that both contestants were were drinking um, mm-hmm. what seems to right. be fairly heavily. How would that factor into you know, legally into um, charges of misconduct? Well, alcohol, you're right, is a very complicating factor. So first of all, for the perpetrator of a sexual assault, if there is one, it's not a defense. It's not a defense to say, well, I was drunk. I mean, you voluntarily ingested that alcohol. If you commit a crime, you are legally responsible, whether you are drunk or sober. On the victim's side, if she's drunk, Um, that creates some problems uh, on a couple of levels. Number one, for her testimony, she's going to be accused of not being able to testify accurately because she was drunk and how does she really remember. Um, But, you know, overall, I think it creates more of a problem for the perpetrator because if she is not able to consent, and then we go back to that all-important word, consent, if she's not able to consent because of alcohol, then uh, it's a sexual assault It's not it's not consensual sexual activity. Is there a situation um, where sexual contact could go on between two people where they both were unable to give consent and both failed to give consent? You know, that's a very interesting question. And I I suppose it's possible, Um, although I haven't heard of any cases like that. And... We saw that Warner Brothers um, has concluded its investigation, and they said in their statement that they retained the help of an outside law firm. Is that kind of thing common for a big corporation to bring in an outside law firm on something like this? And and why why would that be done? Well, first of all, I'm very skeptical uh, because does who does that law firm represent? Does the law firm represent Warner Brothers? Probably, uh, and they probably bring in the law firm so that their interests are protected. The law firm then does an investigation and everything is confidential because of the attorney-client privilege. So I don't buy it. That's similar to what Fox News did over the years, including with Roger Ailes. They brought in this outside attorney and they said, oh, we have this independent law firm doing an investigation. Aren't we terrific? And everybody said, aren't they terrific? And I said, no, (laughs) this is not an independent investigation. And sure enough, A few months later, when I had a sexual harassment case against Fox News and those very same attorneys contacted me, I said, are you independent? And they said, no, we represent Fox News and its parent corporation. So that's what I thought. So, you know, we were able to debunk that. And with Warner Brothers, I suspect it's probably the same kind of situation. And that's why I'm also skeptical about the outcome of their investigation, because, you know, Warner Brothers, like any company, wants to protect itself, wants to protect its own. And so an outcome that, you know, nothing improper happened uh, is not surprising. If it was a truly independent investigation done by an outside third-party company that was not a law firm, um, I would be less skeptical. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, in their statement, Warner Brothers also said that they found, you know, as you said, no evidence of misconduct between the two cast members and also um, that the evidence doesn't support the claim that cast any cast members were in danger at any time. Uh, but Corinne has has retained outside counsel in Marty Singer, uh, uh-huh. and he released a statement saying it needs to be made crystal clear that production of Bachelor in Paradise was shut down because of multiple complaints received from producers and crew members. It was not shut down due 
to any complaint filed by Corinne against anyone, it comes as no surprise that Warner Brothers, as a result of its own internal investigation, would state that no wrongdoing had occurred. Our own investigation will continue based on multiple new witnesses coming forward, revealing what they saw and heard. Um, I'm just wondering what you take away from a statement like that. Well, we have a real dispute here. Uh, And Corinne and her attorney are going to continue to fight. And Warner Brothers' law firm's investigation is not the last word on this, clearly. And it's all going to be a matter of what the tapes show, what the witnesses have to say, excuse me, how credible Corinne is. Uh, That's what it's all going to turn on. But, you know, this investigation is just the first step, and there's still going to be more to come. In this kind of case, is the outcome usually settling in some capacity? From my understanding, uh, that's sort of what people tend to bring Marty Singer in for. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Well, you know, I'm currently in litigation against Marty Singer. We sued him personally in our Bill Cosby case because he's the one that made statements about my client, Janice Dickinson, which we contend were defamatory. He called her a liar when she accused Bill Cosby of rape. Marty Singer is typically on the other side of my cases. He represents the bad boys of Hollywood, and I represent their victims. So it's a, it's a surprising choice uh, for an attorney uh, that Corinne made, but uh, I certainly wish her all the best, and I hope Marty Singer does effectively advocate for her. Yes, I would say that 95% of cases do settle before trial. This one is probably no different. Um, and that's because people just want to get things resolved and they want to move on. And that's, that's their choice. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But first you generally have to put up a pretty good fight. And in a case of sexual assault, you certainly want somebody who really understands women's issues and sexual assault and, and, you know, all of the fallout that happens after a sexual assault for women psychologically, um, you know, it's a it's a very big area of practice. It's the primary area in which I practice. I have many sexual assault and sexual harassment cases. I sit with women every day who are crying, who are upset, who lost their jobs, uh, or having probably a very significant press conference tomorrow in a sexual assault cases, uh, which I haven't announced yet. Um, so unfortunately, there are just a lot, a lot of cases of this. Yeah, yeah. This one just happens to be... Um very complicated and high profile. And mm-hmm. it, from your perspective, is it wise that the show decided to resume filming so quickly after making this statement? Well, that's a good question, too. You know, I think it probably would have made more sense to really hear everyone out. They they say they did an investigation, but it certainly sounds like it was pretty quick. And um You know, Corinne's attorney says that they still have more witnesses that they're hearing from. So uh, perhaps they are moving a little too quickly. And what role, you know, I'm, I'm sort of trying to grapple with the fact that we have heard a lot less from the other person in this case, DeMario, and nothing has been filed against him. As of now, it seems to be just a complaint against production. And Corinne herself has not Although she, in a statement through Marty Singer, said she, I am a victim, um, she has not come out and accused DeMario of anything specifically. Like, in from your perspective, you know, what should he be doing? What is the role of hearing his, his story in this? 
well, his story is very important. He may have lawyered up and his lawyer is telling him not to talk. That would not surprise me. Uh, Corinne is probably not naming him because she wants to avoid getting sued for defamation herself. So uh, in high profile cases like this, it's pretty common that somebody will say, I am a victim, but without naming any names. Um, so, I mean, but I obviously everybody needs to hear from him to hear what his side of the story is. That would certainly be helpful, not only to the investigation, but, you know, from a PR perspective, from the point of view of the show, to hear what his side of the story is. Right. I think the only thing we've heard from him as of now is that um, a statement made earlier saying it's unfortunate that my character and family name has been assassinated with false claims. Yeah. Um, and he yeah. said he's been he'd be taking swift and appropriate legal action, but did not say well, what that would be. You know, talk is cheap. A lot of people say that. A lot of people say we're going to sue. We're going to, you know, Donald Trump said that about his accusers last summer. I represented four of them and he's going to come after and sue all of them. Of course, he never did. People say that all the time. Actually, filing a complaint and litigating a case is much more difficult and time consuming. It gets very real. So, uh, you know, we'll see what legal action he takes, if any. Great. This has been so helpful. Thank you so much, Lisa. No, this is just, there's so much to kind of unpack here. And and we just really wanted to make sure that we were getting someone with as much expertise as yourself. And it's, it's well, just, yeah. You're Thank very you. kind. Thank you so much and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take a short break, but please don't go anywhere. We are going to be back to share our conversation with Karina Ray, an associate professor at Brandeis who is really going to help us understand better the historical context for the racial dynamics that we see unfolding with this scandal. Don't go anywhere. Another really important aspect of the public conversation that has surrounded this entire incident has been the racial dynamic. It's something that we've gotten a few emails from people about, and it's something that you know we really want to talk about, and we know that those of you listening have shown a real interest in hearing about as well. And Will Gaskins, who is currently a contestant on Rachel's season of The Bachelorette and also a friend of DeMario's, he doesn't seem to have been present on Bachelor in Paradise, but as a black man in America who is aware of, you know, a lot of the things that that identity comes along with, he shared some really interesting insight in an Instagram post, um, which went up this week. Yeah. So, you know, Will got to know DeMario on The Bachelorette um, set. They they lived in the mansion together. And so he, he had some insight about DeMario as a person. But a big aspect of his Instagram post was, you know, talking about how race plays into sexual assault allegations. Um, Here's a little excerpt. He said, a lot of conversation has gone back and forth and accusations have flown regarding consent and the ability to give it, primarily from one direction. However, one thing which has been largely absent from these headlines is the fact that by all accounts of those present, both parties were willing participants in whatever it is that happened that day. And in fact, there were multiple other people with whom one party engaged in some type of physical contact that day. 
but it wasn't until the black man got into the mix that this was deemed as no longer acceptable. We can lie to ourselves and say that race isn't a factor here and pretend that it doesn't affect our day-to-day lives, but it's just that, a lie. Um, And he did continue to engage in the comments. You know, some people um, commented about um, the difficulties of being a survivor of sexual assault, and he really engaged with that very thoughtfully and and just pointed out that it's important to also bear in mind this long and painful history of black men being um, accused of and, you know, having violence committed on them because of the belief that they're predatory towards white women. Um, so... Sorry. <laughs> to explore that um, and to give us more information about this particular historical context, we spoke to Karina Ray, who, as we said, is an associate professor of African and Afro-American studies at Brandeis University. She looks at the dynamics of interracial relationships and racial constructs around the world, not just in the U.S., but, you know, globally. And she helped us put this Bachelor in Paradise scandal into that broad historical context. She also really urged us to look beyond focusing on what specifically happened in one case and instead really self-examine and try to come to grips with how race has and still does influence all of our perceptions when it comes to how we see sexual assault, love, sex, um, and and identity. And so we're really grateful to her for, for diving into that with us. And here's our conversation with her. Basically, what we've been seeing unfold is that the conversation from fans of the show is dividing into these two camps. There are people who... Um, say that we should just believe the, the alleged victim, we should always believe the victim, and other people who say, well, wait a minute, a lot of times rape allegations against black men arise from racist um, perceptions. So how can we grapple with these like power dynam- dynamics um, that, that are at play in a situation like this one where you have a white woman and a black man and an allegation is made um, about his, him behaving in a sexually aggressive manner toward her. Right. So I think that, you know, there are two main points that have to really come to the fore, which is that historically speaking, when we look at accusations of rape or sexual exploitation or abuse across race lines, the sort of panic and out outbreaks of, of violence, whether in the form um, of judicial or extrajudicial killings, lynching, um, beatings, et cetera, jail time, um, when accusations have been made against Black men uh, for the rape of white women and, and these, as I say, these sort of panics and fears ensue, there's very often no correlation between the actual incidents of rape and the hysteria around it. And I think that that's something really important to understand because whether we're thinking about it in the context sort of most famously in the United States of, um, of, of the South, thinking of Emmett Till, um, or thinking about it in the African colonies, um, or even in a place like the German Rhineland, uh, you know, after World War I when the Rhineland was garrisoned by French 
African troops. And there were all of these sort of panics and outbreaks over the sexual threat that black men posed to white women, allegedly. They, those, they never correlated to the actual instances of rape or of sexual abuse or exploitation. So there's this huge kind of gap between reality and perception that has historically contextualized this question. And I think it's really important for people to understand that because when, when, they, when they come to this question and when they come to this actual instance that you guys are discussing, um, it is encapsulated in a kind of very long history of, 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 of a gap between sort of perception and reality or response and reality, sort of the, the fear and the accusation versus the truth of what happened. So that's one point that I think should be made. I think the other context that's really important here is when historically and globally, when you actually look at the reality of sexual abuse, rape, and exploitation across the color line, historically, white men have been able to act with impunity um, against women of color, especially black women, whether uh, it, during slavery, during Jim Crow, whether in the African colonies, et cetera. This is a long, well-established pattern of immunity from the law, immunity from um, uh, persecution that white men have enjoyed in, uh, in, in regards to their own sort of sexual license and ability to abuse uh, non-white women. So I think that that, and, and the law, and it's important also to remember, that whereas the law has historically protected white women from rape, that has not been the case for black women. So again, we have this kind of these sort of this gap between um, how people perceive interracial rape as a phenomena enacted by black men on white women and the reality, which is that historically it has been white men that have acted with impunity in, in raping non-white women. And those two things need to really be taken into consideration when thinking about how people respond to this instance that you guys are looking at. Yeah, um, that's a really good, uh, really good piece of context or two pieces of context. Um, and, and another aspect is that the complaints originally were made by at least one third party to the situation, a producer, um, rather than Corinne herself. Um, so can, could you give a little context to, um, as you touched on, the way that uh, that we as, as white viewers uh, might have um, an, an – I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here um, – the, the way that racial anxieties and, and bigotries can – arise when we see a black man and a white woman together and and how that might influence perception of an event like this? Right. Well, so, you know, I think another way of asking that question is to think about different kinds of scenarios. So had that producer seen two, um, a, a white man and a white woman engaged in the same activity, would she have had the same response? If it would have been a white man and a black woman, would she have had the same response? If it had been 
a black man and a black woman, would she have had the same response? And I think sort of interrogating that is important here because then we realize that the race and gendered optics of this particular couple um, may very well have played into the specific kind of reaction she had, which was to kind of assume that he was acting in a predatory way and she was being victimized, right? And again, there's a long history of that kind of optic, right? Where even in a situation that it's consensual, the black man is assumed to be behaving aggressively and, and the white woman is, is seen as being either passive or a victim, right? And, and, you know, in noting sort of the response in the wake of this intervention by the producer where the woman in question has now sort of said, I was too drunk, I couldn't have consented, um, you know, I have a boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera. That, if you look back at the history, that also is a very familiar line that white women have used when engaging in consensual sex with black men um, and then are, are, are found out, right? They'll, they'll say it was, you know, it was rape, right? And that has led to countless number of black men being imprisoned or lynched um, and so this is, you know, the nature of what's happening right now in this particular conversation is, is really sort of important because I think it, it reminds us that this is not history, right? All of these kinds of, of optics are very much alive and they influence how people view interracial contact, right? And how, how that changes when, you know, when it's maybe two a, a, a white man and a white woman. We, I mean, we, we know, for instance, that this question of consent on college campuses is rampant. And we also know that, you know, oftentimes um, white male students end up getting off the hook for these charges. I mean, so this is a, this is a, a national sort of conversation around consent. Um, and I think when we look at it, we often see that, that young white men are able to successfully defend themselves. And it begs the question of, you know, what kinds of resources Black men have to defend themselves against these kinds of accusations. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about this history of white women um, being having it suggested to them that they were victimized by a Black man when they were discovered to be having sex uh, consensually, um, I, you know, I think a lot of times the 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 state that our conversation about consent is at is that we say, well, why would a woman lie about being raped? Um, we should assume that she wouldn't lie about that because how does it benefit her? How might that um, be looked at in a different light in, in a situation that involves a black man and a white woman? Like, why, why does that history exist? Well, because there was a social stigma for, for, for a white woman, historically, for a white woman to have been regarded or to have announced herself as being consensually involved in a sexual relationship with a black man, she would have historically lost her kind of uh, her status, right? She would have either been seen as immoral or in certain historical circumstances, she might have even been seen as, as, as insane. Um, and that that kind of the, the social stigma attached to that is what leads women in these situations to then claim rape, right? There's no way I would have consented to this. 
I was raped, right? The investment in, in maintaining her white privilege calls, you know, re- requires that, right? Requires that she deny that it was consensual. Now, in the specific situation that you guys are looking at, you know, this question of her status as a as as a as a white woman and sort of losing that may be less at play than sort of her own sense of you know in her in her relationship with her boyfriend right there's no way that I would have done this because I'm I'm in a relationship right but the question then becomes is it more does it is her is the suggestion that it was forced more plausible because he's black. Mm. Right. So so we can we can parse it by looking at what are her investments in making the claim? Is it, you know, are are they, you know, and I would and I would make the argument that a a claim about virtue and morality is never untethered from race and from whiteness. So I think it's still embedded there when she's talking about, you know, why wouldn't have cheated on my boyfriend? Right. I think those questions of, of, of virtue and immorality are always raced and they're always gendered, right? But then we can also ask, you know, sort of the question, you know, does does her claim or does the claim that the producer is making, which she has now embraced, have more teeth, get more mileage, and is more believable because he's black? So I think there's two ways of, 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 of needing to understand the optics of this. Yeah. Um, that's, thank you. That's a really great insight, I think, for a lot of us who are watching the show and don't necessarily have all these, um, pieces of historical knowledge, uh, to put it all in context. Um, I, I, is there anything else you'd like to add about the situation before we wrap up? I, I might suggest to you that you encourage your listeners to move beyond the whodunit question or, did he do it or is she lying and all of that to reflect sort of more broadly on the ways, the process through which they arrive at that conclusion. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if this uh, investigation shows that he's in the clear, right. Or not, people will kind of be in their camps and they'll be fixed in their reactions to that. Right. So Rather than focusing on that set of questions about mm-hmm. trying to figure out the truth behind what happened, what's probably more fruitful is for people to really step back and think about the ways in which they've seen it and how have individual people analyzed it, because then that gives them a chance to consider perhaps their own conscious or unconscious biases, right? So so I think trying to move it beyond a kind of question of, you know, does the history of sort of interracial rape and the way in which black men have often been unfairly accused of rape, does that, you know, does that actually say something definitive about what happened in this particular case, right? Instead of doing that to say sort of how has that history actually influenced how people view this particular case, right? Because I don't think people are necessarily aware in a kind of sort of frontal lobe sort of way of that history, but it's something that people absorb in in a, in a in a kind of deep way, and that's why this question of how we see interracial relationships continues to vex American society. I mean, we just 
uh, you know, last week celebrated 50 years of Loving versus Virginia striking down the last legal barrier to interracial marriage. And yet we are still so preoccupied with this question. And what does that say about who we are and how we've been affected by this kind of deep history of what I would consider anti-Black racism, which has reared its head in two different ways, right? One is the hypersexualization of Black men, and then also the second way is the hypersexualization of Black women. And when you contrast that with the ideas that people have around white sexuality, which isn't race, right? It's like individual white people are either promiscuous or not. It's always seen as embedded in the person. And, and that might be something else that you want to graze. Why is it that we feel able to talk about Black male sexuality in a kind of homogenous way, and yet when it comes down to the woman in question, we're talking about her as an individual? Mm, really amazing points. Thank you. Um, that's definitely the kind of thing that we we want to get our listeners thinking about, and we really appreciate that. So I hope that you all took away a lot from that because we certainly did. Um, And one thing is that we do want to reiterate that it's not productive for those of us who are fans of the show, who are not involved to vilify individual people involved in the situation. Even if we strongly believe that certain people did something wrong, um, that's not really what what is helpful here um, for all of us. So to make this a healthy conversation, and try to take a little bit of positivity away from this horrible thing that happened. Um, I hope we can all try to focus on just recognizing the racist assumptions and the sexist assumptions that this situation has stirred up, and then using that awareness for good and to try to improve um, the status quo. And you know, we only want the best for the contestants who are affected by this, and we want to encourage everyone to take what we've learned from this moving forward and, and do good with it. Yeah, we also recognize that for a lot of people, you know, you might take pause about even wanting to watch Paradise this season. It's certainly something that, you know, we're grappling with. It's always hard when kind of the curtain is pulled back on something that's fun. And when something turns icky, it be, it becomes less fun. So um, I think that's really like an individual decision everyone has to make. But it's certainly something that, you know, makes sense if you're feeling a little less upbeat about the franchise these days. Of course, we're going to keep following this entire situation. We're sure there will be more news. And as Paradise revs up again, um, and as the the investigation that Corinne's lawyer is still doing continues. So we'll continue to try and put all of this in, in context for all of you and ourselves. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week twice to recap a doubleheader episode of Rachel's season of The Bachelorette. So thanks so much to our guests, Lisa Bloom and Karina Ray, who really helped us so much come to grips with the issues here and understand what's going on so much better. Um, we were, we really appreciated that. And thanks as always to our producer, Nick Offenberg. To subscribe and rate our show, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find our show and join the conversation. You can also find us both on Twitter. I'm at Claire E. Fallon. I'm at Emma Lady Rose. Or on Facebook. Um, we have a Facebook page for the show. You can also email us both at here to make friends at HuffingtonPost.com. We'll talk to you next week. 